sometimes insight into an industry comes about by a study and an appreciation of the products of that industry. Study, including tasting, can be very rewarding. We talked to Brian Diaz of NOLA Drinks Show. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Brian Diaz, host and executive producer of NOLA Drinks Show with Brian Diaz. That podcast is a member of the Nitty Grits Network which is the network supported by the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. So welcome, Brian. Hey, Liz, how are you? Thank you. I'm good. It's really exciting to have you here. We've been talking a lot about podcasts before we got started, and that's really (laughs) what I want to talk to you about. Uh, I want to know how you came to be interested in drinks and culture, and then how you came to start this podcast. Yeah, it's a good question. So I I guess I'll kind of start at at the beginning if you'd like me to. I've been in New Orleans for about 14 years now, I think, full time or living here as a resident. I've been coming here since I was a kid in the late 70s. So spent a lot of time in in this part of the world. Uh, Always had an interest in drink, food and culture. Like we say, I started out in a previous life prior to doing any sort of broadcast or media Uh, I worked in the nonprofit world and I worked in the environmental nonprofit world, mostly in the developing world and my uh, master's degrees in international environmental policy. So I did coral reef work in marine protected area work uh, around uh, chunks of the planet at times. And so that's always been something that's kind of informed me about things like talking about culture and talking about social issues and things like that. And then I was, uh, I live over on the North shore, as you know, Liz, and sometimes people call me the Bon Vivant as a joke of the North shore. So, you know, <laughs> I do like drinking food <laughs> and music and these things. And so it just kind of all came together. And I, I started some years ago on radio substituting for a friend of ours, actually some of you know, Tim McNally on, on radio because he traveled extensively and I would fill in as his guest host for weeks at a time here and there as he was on the road. And it just kind of evolved into my own show on radio and podcast, I think probably going on about six or seven years, something like that. Five, six, seven years. I should count these episodes. Like people go, do you have a, you know, when are you going to have your 1000 show or five? I have no idea. (laughs) 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 So yeah, that's kind of how it came to be just started on radio. And and then obviously with the way of the world with podcasts, when I started doing my own thing, it was just obviously very important to have a podcast present in a presence, excuse me, in addition to the radio presence. And so are, are you still working in environmental science? I, not, not anymore. Um, you know, when I hit my mid or mid to late thirties or so, I was traveling about 40% of the time, Liz. And again, to in the developing world, which look, I got was a very fortunate person. I got to see a lot of really interesting and fascinating places. And some of that even piqued my curiosity into, you know, obviously with like food and drink and, and all and broader aspects of culture, wherever I was. 
but it just kind of became a bit of a grind. And as we all know, working in the nonprofit world, not like radio is either, but working in the nonprofit world is not the most uh, lucrative thing either. And I needed to change a pace. And, and from there, I actually went to work in the wine industry in California. So how did you really get into drinks and spirits as the thing that you transferred sort of all of your energy into, as opposed to say painting or culture or whatever other thing? Oh, wow. That's uh, because the the last two things you just mentioned, I have literally zero talent in. (laughs) So maybe a process list of elimination, I guess. It's a good question too. I, my parents, I grew up around wine in California. And so after my nonprofit days ended, at least in the environmental stuff, I started working in the wine industry out there. My folks had a small vineyard in the Bay Area for a number of years. And I just sort of had an interest in getting involved in in that industry. And again, with sort of an angle, a lot of what I did was consulting on sustainability and education programs in, in the wine world, as well as marketing stuff and other things. I ran a couple tasting rooms, just stuff like that. And so I became very immersed even further in the world of wine on a professional level. And obviously that just lends itself to connections with with food and drink and other things quite naturally. And even had dabbled a little bit in the wine industry as I came to Louisiana. I was the general manager of the local winery, Pontchartrain Vineyards here for a little while. And then like the music and culture stuff, I was minored in music in college and I played in bands and still dabble a little bit in that world as well. And so, you know, New Orleans is such a natural backdrop for food, drink, and culture. I mean, it's just easy, right? And so it's really just talking about things that are all around me that I enjoy. Yeah, it's really hard to live here and not really be part of the culture. There's just so much of it. It's great. Yeah, it's like, if you don't, then I would ask why. (laughs) (laughs) So how... How would you say you made the transition to podcasting from the radio show? Well, uh, so kind of, it, it was pretty natural when I started doing my own show, as opposed to filling in for, for Tim that I mentioned, you know, Tim was doing his show daily in the afternoons, every day, two hours. And that's a lot of work if you're really trying to do it right. And so what kind of happened is Tim asked me if I wanted to take a, a permanent day from him. And I started doing one day a week, basically on his show. And we were calling it the NOLA drinks edition of his show. And at that time I started the podcast pretty simultaneously with that, just because again, it was sort of the way of the world and, you know, being on AM radio is only going to reach a certain segment of the population. Also given the radio station in question. And so it was just kind of a, I, how should I put it? I mean, really just sort of an obvious thing to me to do. So as the NOLA drinks branding emerged, you know, website, social media, the podcast has really been a part of it since day one as a way to reach more people. And then when I started doing my own show a few years ago, just doing an hour on radio, I started doing a podcast only segment that we call another shot with NOLA drinks. And I was finding Liz that I mean, and you've been a guest on my show before that a lot of people, especially outside the area, I think about 40% of our audience is, is not in the greater New Orleans area. So a lot of service industry people and serious enthusiasts, we can be pretty technical at times on the show. So like, for example, if we're talking about social issues in the hospitality industry, that's only going to, you know, certain people are not going to care about that at all. Or the example I always use, if I have say a distiller on 
talking about the specifics or uh, mechanics of their distillation methodology. Like, you know, do they have a pot still or do they have a column still or right. something mm -hmm. along those lines or talking to a chef about more specific cooking technique or sourcing locally and how that means to be a good, you know, citizen of the, the neighborhood, if you will. And so it just kind of led itself naturally to have this podcast only segment that I could get a little further into the weeds. So that whole podcast world just kind of lined up with that and allowed a nice, I guess, complimentary piece to the radio stuff. So have you found that by having a podcast that it gives you more ability to have people enthusiastic about being on, on the show more than just the radio? That's, a re that's also a really good question. And it's one you and I were just talking about before we started recording. You know, I, I grapple with it and I'll, I'll give you a really funny example because I'm, I'm old enough that like the cachet, I guess, and I don't necessarily want to say AM radio has a ton of cachet these days. I would do every so often, I'll, I'll get with PR company friends of mine who, you know, run PR companies that I deal with who help me, you know, identify guests sometimes and things. And I'll say, you know, do I need to be on the radio anymore? And it is always, almost always Liz split right down the middle. And so split based on age or something else. I think there's a, I think there's definitely an age factor in it. It's not too difficult for anybody to start a podcast. Technically it's a lot more difficult to maintain one and maintain a show. I mean, the, the weekly radio show provides a certain set of built-in discipline, I guess, to this. Mm -hmm. uh, and just even, it struck me the other day, last week, I judged a cocktail competition for Diageo at the Toulouse theater in the French quarter. And the woman who put it on, who's a friend of mine, introduced me as a judge and introduced me as the Vanola Drink Show with Brian Diaz, a podcast. And I think with that demographic, it was a lot of younger bartenders and things that were at this event. People like radio, who cares? Uh, podcast is kind of the thing. And so I, I really vacillate back and forth. I guess it depends on who I talk to. And that's why I'm always sort of trying to be clear that it's the, both these things, because, you know, I don't really know. I don't really know what uh, clicks with most people. Uh, I mean, I do. I think there's a clear age thing in it, but not exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. And so do you have any actual training, not in podcasting, but in distilling or working in a winery other than just on the job training? Have you ever done any studying? Mostly Liz on the job training. You know, I mentioned my folks had a small vineyard for a while. So that put me up close and personal with it. My parents prior to even having the vineyard were always very big in wine and had a lot of friends in the, the wine industry. And then, yeah, pretty hands-on just, you know, running a couple tasting rooms. And I started consulting in vineyard worker education programs for a particular wine region called Lake County in California. That was bringing a lot of my nonprofit experience. And I also ran an organization that was a temporary, it was a marketing order called Summertime in a Glass. And it was a three-year project grant funding from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the California Department of Food and Ag to promote California Sauvignon Blanc. So I started working with a lot of Sauvignon Blanc growers and, and uh, Sauvignon Blanc winemakers. And yeah, kind of just on the job training, you know, developing, developing a palate and appreciation and, you know, working for mom and pop wineries, even though I'm running the tasting room and everybody's out of town, I'm still in the back doing punch downs on the grapes, which makes your shoulders hurt, <laughs> <laughs> especially for me, you know, <laughs> being out of shape. Winemaker, big, can you do the punch downs today? I'm like, oh, do I have to? Okay. <laughs> 
And so then were you, when you were working in the winery area, in the area of wineries, did you also have an appreciation at that point for whiskey? Or was that something that you developed as you just kept experimenting and experiencing more and more drinks? Yeah, I think the I think the the latter, Liz. I mean, growing up in California and and how old I am in, in my early fifties, I was around for the kind of that initial microbrew and craft beer. We're using that term these days; wasn't called that then. But microbreweries, there was an initial wave in the late eighties, early nineties. It kind of went on. We had these small brands like Sierra Nevada and some of these ones that people know, I'm sure, that popped up. And being a college student in San Diego, one has an affinity for beer. And, and I wasn't too much into spirits at that time, just, you know, around wine a lot at that point, obviously, and then became kind of interested in, in beer. And, and then, you know, I, I think a lot of my interest in, in spirits and cocktails and that sort of thing really flourished more here in New Orleans, just because of the, the, the culture behind it and the traditions behind it. And it was something different, you know, having worked in, in wine, you know, a palate's a palate, flavor is flavor. So I didn't find that it was too hard to gravitate towards that with the food stuff. I've always enjoyed cooking greatly, gardening, I've gardened most of my life and stuff like that. And so these things are all pretty just, you know, natural, natural connections for me, I guess, and, and just new things to discover. And my favorite thing Liz, to be honest with you about doing the show is every time I do it, I learn something. And, and that's, that's why. Yeah. I feel that way too. I feel like I learn something all the time. It's really <laughs> wonderful. But I'm glad you brought up gardening because I do think sometimes that there's some kind of bifurcation in people's minds about the actual process of, say, creating wine or creating beer or creating spirits that is not connected to the actual growing of what you turn into wine or spirits or beer. And um I, I think having a knowledge of what has gone into it in terms of it was a hot growing season or a wet growing season or whatever it might be that's different this time than last year. And the variability of that and still then having to understand how that works and changes your grapes or it changes your whatever grain you're using, or it, it changes it. And people don't even think about that when I think they're drinking. They just think about, even if they decide, oh, I'm going to learn more about it. They learn more about distilling, but they may not learn more about the growing of whatever it is. And I think that's a shame. I I agree with you 100%. I think it's a little maybe more abstract for people when you talk about spirits or cocktails, I think that's changed or has been changing for the past 20 or so years with the craft cocktail movement. When you talk about bartenders who will make their own syrups or make their own shrubs and these things. But, you know, when it comes to our, our overall disconnect from food and drink, it clearly it's manifest in, in, in alcohol as well. You know, wines may be a little easier for people to make that connection because we throw terms around like terroir and people understand what a vintage is more often than not and these things. But when you talk about most spirits, I mean, really all spirits, they're pro- they, they are products of terroir as well. And understanding exactly as you just said about what my grain selections may be in the case of beer, what your, what hops you're using. And then especially these days too, when people are doing a lot more than just straight hard distilled spirits, 
you know, when we start talking about the, the growing, the burgeoning world that continues to grow in liqueurs and cordials and all of that kind of stuff, uh, there's all kinds of agricultural components to, to that. And when you talk about Amaro's and when you talk about anything in that family of the world, anything made by monks, you know, has a whole bunch of right. things going on. And, and, and so it's very much the same to me that way. And when you're, when you're building a cocktail, it's like building a food recipe and it, it's all to me, I had a bartender some years ago, say to me, I was interviewing on the show, flavor is flavor and flavor is flavor. That's right. I, I recently did a podcast with Corrine Martin who is the author of Louisiana Herb Journal. Mm. And she's an herbalist and, and she does clinical work with herbs. But when we started talking and she was talking about making tinctures and having the essential oils dissolve in grain alcohol and what that, what that means. And of course, adding a little sugar to make it palatable for somebody to take a spoon of it or whatever. I mean, it was like, she's creating bitters and that's what she's talking about. And it was, it was really interesting because when you think about herbalists and you think about the hundreds of years, and of course you're just brought up monks, which is what made me think about it. They were making many times things that were digestives or something that was going to be almost medicinal, if not literally medicinal. And and those connections were very, very much tied to the land and not only things that were actually grown intentionally, but there was a lot of foraging that was involved in it as well. And I just think of, of all of that. And I feel that there's so much of that that's lost in the way we operate today. And of course, sometimes it's maybe even good because if you think about all those years that we had lead in our gasoline and that lead was deposited on the food that we were eating because it was people were driving by agricultural land and it's it's probably all kinds of things like that that are maybe best for us not to eat. <laughs> <laughs> when you start talking about the uh, agro-industrial complex there, there's a lot of scary stuff that goes on. Right. You know, I, and I know, you know, Monsanto, just when I hear that name, it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> definitely. So what do you see as trends right now that we need to be looking at in, in the drinks world? In the drinks world, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. I think we're seeing a lot more, and I think this even reflects the character of the, the, the people in the drinks industry itself or what the drinks industry is trying to accomplish in supporting and being a better industry for the people that are in it. And that's an important thing that we always talk about on the show or the health and well-being of folks in the industry. And where I'm going with this is uh, work-life balance and these things are really important. And to answer your question more directly, then it's, you know, you're serving alcohol in these places, you know, you and I are consuming alcohol in these places. Uh, lower ABV drinks seem to be a, a definite trend. We're seeing more non-alcoholic drinks being made. Somebody just sent me a non-alcoholic Amaro recently as a sample. And the way they're kind of promoting it, it's got that late sort of 19th century traveling snake oil salesman set of branding. It's actually pretty cool <laughs> and very and very deliberate. And, you know, like we were talking about, I mean, that gets back to stuff for digestives and drinking something that for something that ails you. 
So, you know, you could take a product like that and maybe you want to lower the ABV in a particular cocktail. So maybe you still have an alcohol in it, but you're not bringing Amaro as another ingredient with alcohol in it to lower that ABV, or you're just going to make a non-alcoholic drink. And I, I think we're, we're seeing a lot more stuff like that. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a return, you know, I think not so much in New Orleans because New Orleans is always, I talk about this a lot. New Orleans is always an anomaly, I, I think, to a lot of the rest of the world. You know, we've always had that sort of time-honored tradition of the bartender as a professional. Yes. And we didn't really need to use that. The waiter that. too. The, the waiter, the chef, the sushi, everybody in that world is, when you talk about generational people that have worked at whatever Grand Dame restaurant in the quarter for 50 years, exactly. And so we didn't never really need to, you know, maybe use a term like mixologist here as much, which I think has always been kind of, and, and people would argue with me about this to be clear, but using that term to sort of elevate a trade where it didn't necessarily need to be. But I think that you start to see a little bit more of a return to, so where I'm going with this, frankly, like, you know, we back 15 years ago in a place like New York, you would, you, you know, it reminds me of the Catholic priest thing with their back to the congregation speaking like a Somali or something also speaking only a language that I could speak and speaking Latin to the, you know, well, the congregation speaks the vernacular. So here's a cocktail that only I can make. And it's going to cost you $20 and it's going to take me 20 minutes to make it. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a, a pullback from that to uh, sort of simpler presentations and more bars that are coming from the dive bar scene, um, you know, just make a good vermouth selection and elevate your bar program a little bit. And some of the folks in the super fancy schmancy places kind of bringing it back down closer to the dive or high volume bar spectrum. I'm seeing a lot more middle ground uh, in, in those things. Yeah, I think I think that that's probably a, a, a good observation about especially the ABV of what people are drinking, I think. Um, and it also means you can sit longer and drink and visit and talk to people and whatever. Uh, Sessionability, as they say. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So what about this trend that I have noticed is that we're having more sake breweries in the U.S.? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I've, you know, growing up in California, I've been a big fan of sake and shochu for a very long time. And I mean, it, 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 it's almost one of those ones where you kind of go, well, duh. I mean, look at all the rice that we have around here right. and, and, you know, so why not? And actually Liz, I, I would add too from your previous question, because I think it relates to this one that we're not seeing as much monolithic drinking uh, in recent years. And what I mean by that is especially younger generations aren't just saying I am just a whiskey drinker, or I am just a red wine drinker. People are drinking a greater diversity of things. Mm -hmm. And I think, for example, like with, with more uh, sake breweries popping up in this part of the world, craft distillers in craft distilleries, excuse me, in general, popping up uh, in this part of the world, that it's a reflection of diversity of drinking and, and, and exploration, I think of what's out there and, and, you know, creating something new or, you know, I'm always worried uh, when we talk about sake production uh, about cultural appropriation is something we always need to talk about that, you need to acknowledge where it comes from. And I think sometimes people fail on that front, but yeah, I mean, you got a lot of rice and it makes for some great beverages. <laughs> right. Right. And I just, I think it's very interesting just to see the exploration. And I always optimistically think that if you're embracing something new from another place that that makes you admire or at least want to get to know 
the people and the culture of that other place. So I usually try to think of all of that as a positive thing instead of something negative. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess not everybody worries about the culture, but I just think it's so important. I, I, I echo your sentiments 100%. I think the the best way to do it is make sure that you're acknowledging it. And 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 I, that's where I kind of what I, my implication was of maybe cultural appropriation and people failing to do that is that you need to acknowledge where this comes from and you need to acknowledge the cultural roots that you're, I would use the word celebrating in that case, like you're, you're talking about and it, it can spark curiosity, it can spark new journeys, all of that kind of stuff. It's just really, really important to make sure credit is, you know, given where credit is due. Yes. So do you see anything else new going on that you think is worthy of sort of saying, I, I'm looking at the very nascent aspects of this? As far in, in the drink world also? Yes, in the um, drink world. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, I think one of the biggest things, and obviously we've been talking about it for a while, isn't necessarily in the drinks themselves. It's it's taking care of the people in the industry. And I think we're seeing that being taken more and more seriously. And in a place like New Orleans, like we've been talking about, uh, just what we were even talking about, about time-honored traditions and being professionals, you know, seen as being a professional, this is a bedrock thing in our culture. And hospitality anywhere in most cases has been a bedrock part of different cultures and in different places. When I say hospitality, you know, the food and drink world and, and, and that sort of thing and people providing us that hospitality and understanding that. So where I'm going with this is that people, these people are cultural ambassadors. These people are cultural creators, cultural contributors, and making sure that we understand that we value that we respect that on a professional trajectory and respect that in a way that cares for those people who are often you know, working when we're not, because that's when they make money and understanding that work-life balance and these things can be very difficult to maintain your health and your cert, you know, you're working in the case of drinks, you're working around a drug and making sure that, that, you know, abuse, we talk about sexual violence in these places and stuff like that, that people have safe work environments and that, it, you know, it's obviously been a discussion in the industry for a serious one for a few years now, but I think it's starting to further permeate out into the enthusiast world where I see more enthusiasts concerned about those things because these hospitality spaces and the people in them mean something to them. So they're starting to understand the complexities behind that and who these people are and and our need to make sure that we take care of them as well, because without it, we don't, we don't have all this stuff. Right. I think it's particularly true right now as we, we hope come out of COVID and have learned so much when we weren't able to get together and have the people in the hospitality industry taking care of us. Isn't it, isn't it interesting, Liz? And I talked, I asked people that question a lot. And one would think at least in, in, in my observation and people, a lot of people that I know, it made, I would hope it made you more sensitive to all of this stuff. And then in other cases, when we start talking about the extreme examples of bad behavior, you know, we see it on airplanes all the time, but you know, bad behavior in hospitality spaces, I think there's been a real split in what COVID has done to people and the sort of um, self-entitlement that people seem to be demonstrating coming back into these spaces is pretty troubling to me. And I know that it creates problems for our our friends in the hospitality industry. And to me, it's like, I don't get how you get that way. To me, I would think you would be more sensitive, but I guess not, not in everybody's case. Right, right. So let me ask you about 
since we're talking about after COVID, about Tales of the Cocktail. Yes. Coming up. So what should we be looking for there? The good question. I just put out my show, this week's show that just, or past week's show that just came out on Friday is we do an annual Tales of the Cocktail preview that we've done, I, I guess, probably going back six, seven years. And yeah, so it's July 25th in New Orleans that Monday and goes through the 29th of Friday. And I've always just been a big partisan, especially with the new leadership group in in Tales. And that's a conversation for another time what that means. But the folks that that took that over and now and have tried to make it into truly an educational and industry foundation and nonprofit in in the right ways. And, you you know, nobody does everything perfectly, but addressing a lot of the stuff that I was just talking about, supporting the, supporting people in the industry. And I think a lot of people need to understand that people complain about, somebody complained to me on Facebook the other day when I did a show with the philanthropy and development committee people from Tales, because they do a lot of giving and support in the industry, do fund projects for people to address these issues, complaining that, oh, it's become a quote unquote woke conference for something, something, something. And it used to just be about drinks. And the point that I just made in this last episode in closing the show was that this is a professional conference like anything. And a professional conference is supposed to make things better in the industry for those in it and for the industry itself. And so addressing these things, I think is really important. And, you know, look, the tasting rooms at are still there at Tails. The parties are still there. The spirited dinners are all still there. All that stuff's going on, but there's just, you know, they're bolstering the seminars and some of the other resources they're bringing to the table to educate those in the industry and those without the industry on, on some of these important issues. And I mean, I'm, I'm very, cause I'm just a partisan towards that stuff. Uh, I'm very supportive of their efforts to do that. And I encourage people to check that stuff out if they go to tails, but heck, if you just want to go to the tasting rooms, buy your tasting wristband, and you got five days of interesting spirits and cocktails and great bartenders doing stuff. Well, I always tell people that if you allow women, for example, into the community, then you have another 100% more opportunity to have excellent cocktails or excellent whatever it is that they're producing. And that it, it's just a way to expand what can be, what can, what a, a person who has enough time, enough ability to, um, to think about what they're doing, they are going to produce a better product. And if everything is about their own tension because they don't have time off or because they're being pressured in some way or whatever, I, you don't get the best product. So even, even the, the customer has their experience enhanced by having this, the, the staff be well-treated. And, and diverse, like you just yeah. said, and, and you know this, Liz, when you're creating something, whether you're cooking in the kitchen or building a cocktail that you're coming up with or, or, or putting, putting even a bar program or a restaurant program together, that where you come from informs what comes out. And, you know, so when we start talking about broadening the base, you know, greater levels of inclusivity, greater levels of equity, um, obviously, as you just mentioned with women, folks in the queer community, folks from different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, it's also important. And, and, and just as you very well said, 
this is a strength to me. Well, I mean, and even on a business level is if you, if you have a diverse staff, then you're better equipped to deal with your diverse clientele. Yeah. And, and so on just like sort of an X's and O's or profit, you know, profit line number thing, it's important. But I think the creative component of all of this, it's perspective plays into this and the outputs are based on perspective. And I think it's just so important to, to create those opportunities for people. So to me, it should be based on talent and drive and, 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 you know, equal opportunity for all, and then based on talent and drive and merit. And, and it doesn't need to go any further than that. I know easier said than done, but that's the way it should be. Right. Well, Brian, it has been really delightful talking to you today. And thanks so much for being on Tip of the Tongue. Thank you, Liz. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.